Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior Jesus the Christ. Amen. I'm going to use a, a few different scriptures today um, from the Old Testament, so I'd like you to kind of buckle in a little bit here. Here we go. We're going to start with a little bit from Jeremiah, at least thinking about him. I want you to think about Jeremiah and Ezekiel that are speaking to God's people with the same event. So they're speaking, um, Jeremiah is pe- speaking towards the end of the 7th century or the late 600s B.C., so about 627, somewhere in there. Ezekiel is speaking in the 500s, somewhere uh, probably closer to 597. So they're not that far apart, maybe four or five decades, somewhere in there as they're speaking. Now, Jeremiah is speaking to Israel from Israel. So he's with them in the land. He's speaking and saying, you've got to stop what you're doing. You're messing up. You're going the wrong way. Ezekiel is part of those. Remember when God's people messed up, messed up, messed up, and God said, enough, and he sent them to Babylon. Okay? Well, when he sent them to Babylon, they didn't all go at once. There was the first wave, including Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Those are the names you know, right? And then there's another, along with them, went Ezekiel. That was 597. And they were there for 10 years, okay? And the people of Israel just got worse. And so God sent the rest who went to exile. So far, so good? All right, so... That's going to be the background for what we're going to talk about today. First, the, those first four verses that talk about the fathers they've eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So what sometimes we like to do is, is uh, have you ever noticed that um, sometimes in America we like to blame our parents for everything? Mm-hmm. Not you, of course. You're not like that. But sometimes people like to blame their parents for everything. And so the, father eat the fathers eat the sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, I'm going through what I'm going through because my parents were just awful. Some people have that, actually. Some people have a lot of really hard stuff that they've gone through. Okay? And so, you know, there's that little phrase, um, my dad was angry, so no wonder. I have problems with anger. My dad abused me, so that explains why I abuse others. My mom was a worrier, so I just tend to worry. I just follow the example that was set for me. Yet, do we all know examples of people that are not anything like their parents? You know how that little phrase is, the apple hasn't fallen far from the tree? And yet I think for a number of people that I know... The tree is on the top of a mountain. <laughs> so the apple falls and it just rolls forever away. Okay? Some people that you and I know are the exact opposite of their parents for various reasons. Both for good and for bad. Can you think of those? I can. The text goes on after verse 1, and it goes some more, and, and it says then in verse 25, Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. And it talks about God's people saying, the Lord doesn't know what he's doing. He's the one that's in the wrong. Now again, I'd like to ask that question. Okay? Is it harder for you to own up to your own sins, or is it harder for you to live forgiven? Okay? For some people... They're like Saul, and I'll talk about him in just a moment. Saul is one who said, yes, I agree, it was their fault. Okay? 
Do you know people like that? Yes, I agree. That really bad thing happened, and it's all their fault. It's never my fault. It's always somebody else's fault. We probably have worked with somebody like that before, haven't we? (laughs) And they're just a joy to work with. (laughs) It's like, I'm so glad I'm working with you right now. Okay? Really difficult. And so God's people, okay, in Ezekiel 18 are saying, it's the Father's fault, or It's your fault. You know who that sounds like? It sounds like Adam. It's the woman you put here, God. It's God's fault. It's always God's fault, right? He made me this way. We have a hard time with personal responsibility sometimes, and certainly was true for God's people in the book of Ezekiel. Now, I want you to hear just a few things from this book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel 14. This is some amazing stuff. Verses 20 to 23 says this. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they could save neither son nor daughter of God's people. They would save only themselves by their righteousness. For this is what the Sovereign Lord says. How much worse will it be when I send against Jerusalem my four dreadful judgments, sword and famine, wild beasts and plague, to kill its men and their animals? Yet there will be some survivors, sons and daughters, who will be brought out of it. They will come to you, and when you see their conduct and their actions, you will be consoled regarding the disaster I have brought upon Jerusalem. Every disaster I have brought upon it. You will be consoled when you see their conduct and their actions, for you will know that I have done nothing in it without cause, says the Sovereign Lord. So God is being just. He's being righteous. Contrary to what the people of God in Ezekiel 18 are thinking, God's doing what's right. And even if Noah, Job, and Daniel were there, wouldn't matter. They could be righteous themselves. They'd be part of those that would escape, but wouldn't matter for the rest. God has determined this is going to happen. It sounds a little bit like Jeremiah chapter 15, verses 1 through 4. Listen to these. Then the Lord said to me, Even if Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not go out to this people. Send them away from my presence. Let them go. And if they ask, Where shall we go? Tell them, This is what the Lord says. Those destined for death to death, those for the sword to the sword, those for starvation to starvation, those for captivity to captivity. You ever hear some of the stuff from the Gospels, stuff that Jesus says, things that are hard to hear, and then I say after that, this is the Gospel of the Lord? (laughs) This is like really hard to hear. This is hard to hear for us, right? No matter who the righteous one is, standing with the God's people, wouldn't matter. God's will is determined against his people. Now, why is that? Well, I want to introduce you to a, a king of Israel. king Not of Israel, king of Judah. Okay? So if, when you think about the God's holy people, they had a divided nation. So first it was united under King Saul. Then under David, things are fine. Solomon, things are getting a little bit wonky. And then after Solomon, it's a divided kingdom. None of the kings for the northern kingdom were any good because they took people away from worshiping the one true God in the one true place, which was Jerusalem. Okay? But there were some good and some bad in Judah. But I want to introduce you to one that was not 
any good. His name is Manasseh. Listen to what the Word of God says about Manasseh. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. His mother's name was Hephzibah. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. So he was acting just like those. Remember, those people were sent out because the fullness of their sins, their sins reached their fulfillment, and God said, I've had enough, and he cast them out. This king of Judah was as wicked or more wicked than those wicked people that God cast out. And remember, what's the core of the issue here? They would not keep their eyes on God. They kept going after all these other gods. Aren't we so grateful that America doesn't have any other gods besides Jesus? Hope you caught the sarcasm. Right? Gods are under every rock and under, around every corner. And we are filled with them. So I wonder in what ways we might be a little bit like these people. He rebuilt. What did Manasseh do? He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He also erected altars to Baal and made an Asherah pole, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done. So remember how I said none of the kings of the north were any good? Ahab is one of the kings of the north. Manasseh was just like him doing these evil things. He built, he bowed down to the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his own son in the fire, practiced sorcery and divination, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took the carved Asherah pole he had made and put it in the temple, of which the Lord had said to David and to, his, and to his son Solomon, In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And it just gets worse and worse and worse. It's as though Manasseh is the worst king of Israel, of Judah. And I want you to catch that because I want to tell you something later. He is really bad. It almost reminds me of Proverbs 26. I think I shared this with a Bible study group on Tuesday. Proverbs 26 talks about a fool and how bad it is for a fool. And all those first 12 or 13 verses of Proverbs talks about just how bad it is for a fool. And then it says, it's better to be a fool than to be one who's wise in their own eyes. Now there's some pretty bad kings of Judah and Israel, but Manasseh is worse. a king of Israel who's so distracted from the way he's supposed to go with his God that he acts like the nations around him, the nations who were there before him, the nations who got kicked out. What does God desire? That even he would turn and live. Now, you might think of those who do turn and live. You see, Just because there was no hope for them to get out of going to exile, because of what Manasseh had done, God's people who were under King the King Manasseh, they would go into exile. No doubt, no question, no matter what. Even Manasseh had a great father. His name was Hezekiah. Great father. 
Manasseh had a great, awesome grandson, Josiah. Okay? Wonderful. But he was lousy. Okay? So they were going, even after Josiah made all of his reforms, did all these good things, God's people were still going into exile because of what Manasseh had done and how the people were influenced by him. Now, that doesn't mean that they couldn't turn while in exile and live. Have you found out that our God is a God of hope? And so he always says, turn, return, come back to me. He does what he does so that he might get our attention and bring us back. He doesn't give up on us. Turn. And I'll show you that in just a minute. Now, there were those whom God did that for. He would say, turn, and they did. I'm thinking of the book of Jonah. Who are the people that God sent Jonah to so that they would turn and live? Ninevites, the Ninevites, these horrible people. Remember, I described them to you before. They would go into battle, and when they would go into battle, they would take and kill these people, and some of them that they didn't kill, they would skin alive first and then kill them. Of course, that would kill them to skin them. And they would hang their skins on the walls of their buildings. These are some awful people. And God said, turn and live. Forty days, and Nineveh will be no more. And they repented. Turn and live. Amazing. Next one. God is saying to the people in the New Testament book of Hebrews, turn or don't turn. Because they, they had been followers of Jesus, but the persecution, the struggles of being a follower of Jesus were just too great. And so they were being interested in turning around to go back after the Jewish ways instead of staying as followers of Christ. So turn. See me again. Now, Some of those who turned, remember we can turn either to good or to bad. I won't read all these for you. It would take too long. But Saul, you find about him in 1 Samuel 10, 1 Samuel 15. Saul is one who is very humble. He didn't even think he should be king. He was one who prophesied. And yet, after a little while, he's the one who wouldn't obey what God said through Samuel. He's the one that wouldn't do what God said for him to do. And so he's the one that turned away, and God relented. God was sad that he had made Saul the first king of Israel. Solomon, he was a wise man. He asked for wisdom to know how to lead God's people. Wonderful beginning. But then because of his 700 wives and 300 concubines, they turned his heart away from God. You all just hope I'm not boring you today. 700 wives. Not even a little guffaw. I got one from Richard. 700 wives? 300 concubines? How do you even have a favorite among that many? Like, how do you remember a third of their names? (laughs) If you read the book, what is it, Ecclesiastes? He didn't spare himself any pleasure, any fun, anything. But he couldn't find life in that. And all those wives and concubines led his heart away from God. Just a quick question. Is there anything in your life that's leading you away from God? And is there anything that God is saying to you today? Turn and live. Now, those kings both lost their humble dependency on God. But I want you to hear this next little part. They turned away from God. What does it mean to turn to God? 
Paul Miller writes this book I'm using for our, our Bible class about Ruth, and he says this, The humility we've seen in Ruth is not secondary to the gospel. It is the path of the gospel, the J-curve, where we lower ourselves down to lift up those around us. It is the footpath that a gospel-centered journey takes. If you see the gospel only as a proposition that you believe, now, this is so important, please don't miss this part. If you see the gospel only as a proposition that you believe, that reshapes your identity, then you can easily slip into a kind of gospel narcissism where Jesus, for me, just makes you touchy. Jesus is for me. Jesus loves me. Don't tell me I'm wrong. Don't tell me I did something wrong. Don't tell me I need to turn and live. Do you know people like that? You've never moved on from Jesus' death for you to have death for others, your own death for others. Jesus is good for your self-image, but he hasn't mastered your life. He doesn't own you. But that's not what Jesus says to us. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. Romans 12, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's what he says. Turning to God is finding our identity in God, which doesn't lead us to a cushy life that's touchy, but to a life that's lived, as Philippians 3 says, that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. That's what we want. To know him more, to experience his power in our lives, that we might love others and find real life doing that. Not just to exist, but to, lo- but to live as we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. That's what Ezekiel and Jeremiah were talking about. Don't keep living unto self, but live the new life. Turn and live. Now, again, I've given you lots about what Manasseh is like, but I'd like to actually share one other part. This is from 2 Chronicles 33 about this king Manasseh. Please hear this. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. Okay, so he wouldn't listen, so there was a consequence. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew the Lord was God. Afterward, he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord, and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord, and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord, and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Manasseh, this worst king of all of Judah, turned and lived. If there's hope for him, there's hope for you. Just like one last person. I have a a little article on it, but I I know I'm late. So I just want to give it to you this way. Just like John Newton. What's the song we sang right for the sermon hymn? Amazing Grace. Who wrote that? John Newton. Can I read just a little bit to you? Are you okay with that? This is such an awesome biography. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. So begins one of the most beloved hymns of all times, a staple in the hymnals of many denominations. From John Newton. Newton was born in London, 
July 24, 1725, the son of a commander of a merchant ship which sailed the Mediterranean. When John was 11, he went to sea with his father and made six voyages with him before the elder Newton retired. In 1744, John was impressed into service on a man of war. Finding conditions on board intolerable, he deserted but was soon recaptured and publicly flogged and demoted from midshipman to common seaman. Finally, at his own request, he was exchanged into service service on a slave ship, which took him to the coast of Sierra Leone. He then became the servant of a slave trader and was brutally abused. Early in 1748, he was rescued by a sea captain who who had known John's father. John Newton ultimately, ultimately became captain of his own ship, one which plied the slave trade. Although he had some early religious instruction from his mother, who had died when he was a child, he had long since given up any religious convictions. However, on a homeward voyage, while he was attempting to steer the ship through a violent storm, he experienced what he was later to refer as his great deliverance. He recorded in his journal that when all seemed lost and the ship would would surely sink, he exclaimed, Lord, have mercy on me. Later in his cabin, he reflected on what he had said and began to believe that God had addressed him through the storm and that grace had begun to work for him. For the rest of his life, he observed the anniversary of May 10th, 1748, as the day of his conversion, a day of humiliation in which he subjected his will to a higher power. Through many dangers, toils, and snares I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. He continued in the slave trade for a time after his conversion, However, he saw to it that slaves under his care were treated humanely. And then it goes on from there that he becomes a pastor. And he's starting the work, and he's helping out with abolition to get rid of slavery. His life is changed, and that doesn't just say, yay for me, let me put my feet up. But his changed life then changed the lives of so many others. Turn and live. That's what happened to John Newton. Turn and live. That's what happened to Manasseh. Turn and live. That's what God wants to happen for you and me on a daily basis. Not just once in our lives, but whenever we see ourselves wandering away to turn, to seek Jesus, and to live. Amen.